Very quickly, before we uh, get into the text this morning, um, uh, as for those of you who have been worshiping with us for some time, you knew that we recently wrapped up our verse-by-verse exposition through the book of Ephesians. And it really helps me to have a book that we're working through. And after some, some careful thought and prayer, I think, I think we've, I, I say we, I think I've decided, I think I've settled on what our next study will be. And I think we're going to take up the book of Exodus, okay? Now, we're not going to preach through uh, the law portion as, um, as detailed as we would preach through the opening sections of the book of Exodus. We will work through those latter sections a little more quickly, especially where there's lots of laws and so forth. But I do think it would be an excellent um, thing for us to get acquainted with that book as it sets the stage for so much of the rest of the Old Testament as it, and it prepares us to meet the Lord. And there are, and Moses was a person. I don't know if you think about it that way or not. He was not a machine. He's not a historical figure that's been made up. He is an actual guy and he had struggles and pride and fear and success and failure. And I think we can learn a lot from him and how the Lord worked with him and how the Lord used him. I'm looking at my title screen right now, and I, I scoured my document for typos, and right there on the title page is a typo, <laughs> prayer in times of Chris. Um, <laughs> I apologize to any Chris's who are in here today. It meant it was supposed to be crisis, um, so yeah, my apologies. <laughs> Rats, right on the front page. It couldn't have even been in like a subtle place. Well, as sort of a fill-in, we, we're going to be, it, it'll be a few weeks, by the way, till we get to Exodus. Um, I'm going to, we're going to study this. We've been making prayer and emphasis uh, this year, and so I thought we would have um, another, uh, another sermon today dedicated to prayer. Next week, we're going to have another prayer section, and then the following week, I'm going to be down um, in St. George that weekend uh, for a Seago Lily event, and then a church down there asked if I would stick around for the weekend and uh, preach to their church on Sunday. And I was like, hmm, St. George in February? Hmm, I'll think about that. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I'll be down there um, preaching to their church. And so be, pray- be in prayer. That'll be February 12th at Westside Baptist Church in uh, St. George. So, um, um, yes, I think that was all the updates. I would invite, it's, I know it's snowy and you might, you might not have come prepared to traipse through the snow, but I'd encourage you to get over the parsonage and check out what got done downstairs. It really, it's really come along, and if you haven't been in there in a while, I think you'll be surprised at all the progress that was made. All right, John chapter 4, John chapter 4. Let's read verses 43 through 54. After two days, this is Jesus, he departed for Galilee. He'd been in Sychar. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. 
When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, Unless you, now I want you, if you like to write in your Bibles, to add a word here. You're not adding a word to God's word because it's there in Greek. It's challenging to bring over in English. But I believe the NASB or the NIV has it translated this way, unless you all. Greek has a second person plural you, as in you all or y'all if you're in the South. And that's what this word is. Unless you all... See signs and wonders, you all will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that 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 was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Father, would you give us grace to know how we should be praying in times of crisis? May we see the faith that was displayed. May we see, most importantly, the Savior in whose power and capability we're commanded to believe in. He's so kind. Jesus is so good. And so gracious, may we look to him in times of need, in times of crisis, knowing that he will rush to our aid. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe I'd been a pastor, I'd been an associate pastor for about a year, and there was a couple there. They were in our church, and there are some people that you develop a special relationship with, and this was one of those couples. The husband's name is Andy, and his wife's name is Lisa, Andy and Lisa Herman. They have five boys, and they were a joy, such blessed friends. When Lisa found out that Danielle was at the hospital having Peyton, she was the first one there. She beat the entire pastoral staff to the hospital, and she waited in the waiting room until I came out to announce that all was good. Well, Lisa had a a heart condition, and she was going to have to have a heart surgery. I don't remember how extensive the heart surgery was right offhand, but it was going to be a pretty major surgery for a woman as young as she was. So I told the pastoral team, I'm happy to go to the hospital and meet with my friends and pray with them. And, And so I went, and the boys were all piled into Lisa's Uh, hospital room. And Lisa was a wonderful servant of the Lord, extremely selfless. And she did what I would have expected her to do. She, she She brought with her to the hospital room food for everybody that would be visiting her. She had snacks and coffee cakes. She had drinks. And it was like a big party for Lisa's open heart surgery. 
She was laughing and joking and her ease set me at ease. Well, the surgeon came in and described what would be happening and then the people that prepped her started to come in and the boys left and it was just me and Lisa and her husband and it was getting to be about time for me to leave and I said, Lisa, would you like me to pray with you now? And she said, please. And so I approached the hospital bed and at that moment, something surprising happened. Lisa reached out and grabbed my arm and pulled me toward her. And for the first time, I saw what was in her soul, and it was fear. And that, too, caught me off guard. It shouldn't have, but it did. And I prayed with Lisa. She was having a moment of crisis. Now, no doubt those feelings had been in there all along. But now that the distractions had left and the boys had gone out and the only thing that awaited her was a long haul and bright lights and a scalpel, the fear that was churning in her became evident. It's remarkable that it hadn't shown to that very moment. Well, the Lord brought Lisa through that, and she's doing great now. Lisa and Andy, if you're listening to this at some point, I want you to know how much we love you. They're such special people. Well, I don't know, I don't know when crisis is going to strike you. Maybe it'll be the sort of crisis that's a moment. Maybe it'll be the sort of thing that plays out over 48, 72 hours. But crisis will find you. And this is a scene where we meet a father in crisis. And he does the exact right thing when this crisis strikes his life. He reaches out for Jesus. And so we have here a father who wants Jesus to intervene in his moment of crisis. Let's allow John to set the scene for us. He tells us in verse 43 that after two days, Jesus had departed from Galilee. We learned in chapter 4 that Jesus had to travel through Samaria, and he met there a woman who was uh, in an adulterous relationship. She'd been married five times, and here she was at the well, a known homewrecker, as it were, a social outcast, and Jesus meets with her proclaims to her that he's the Messiah that can take care of her sins and give her living water, and she believes, and she brings out the entire village, and they too believe. And they beg Jesus to stay longer to teach them, and he does. He stays two additional days. But Jesus has an appointment to keep. His disciples don't know it, but Jesus needs to get north, and so he leaves these Samaritans there after this success, and we're told in chapter 40 and verse 44 that Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own in his own hometown. Now, this little phrase right here perplexes uh, commentators. I read one commentator that offered 10 different possible interpretations of that statement. I don't I, I read them and I'm not. sure what to make of them. Here's what I think John is trying to communicate to us. That 
Jesus is going ahead into Galilee, and there's a bit of foreshadowing going on here, for the people in Galilee will reject him. John has already said all the way back in chapter 1 in his introduction that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus' ultimate mission was not to perform miracles. It was not to teach Samaritans and, and, uh, and establish his kingdom forevermore right there, live and in the flesh. Jesus' mission of his first coming was to be rejected at the hands of his own people, to be crucified and to rise again and to introduce this age of mercy and grace where his kingdom reigns in the hearts of the converted. Jesus is about that mission. That is his mission. And as much as his heart wanted him to stay in Samaria and teach people who were asking for truth, he had to pursue the will of his Father, which meant rejection from his people. And Jesus' own actions would hasten that rejection rather than slow it down. And I think that's what John is trying to communicate here. So Jesus is heading north to create trouble, to create a situation where his people will be confronted with who he is. So he comes to Galilee. And the Galileans, were told, in verse 45, welcome him, but it, it's a shallow welcoming. Jesus will be back up in that region in chapter 6, and he's going to preach a sermon that he's the bread of life. And they walk away from him one after the other. They loved the bread that he provided. They loved the miracles that he did, but they did not love Jesus the teacher, Jesus the Messiah. They welcomed what he brought, but they did not welcome his claims. So, these people, though, had heard Jesus had performed some miracles in Jerusalem, and they had gone to the feast. And as I say here in this bullet point of verse 45, word is traveling fast. There's a prophet, and nature obeys him. He heals people. He does things for people. He cares. He's warm. He's kind. And word has reached a dad who lives 18 miles away from Cana in Galilee, which is a town called Capernaum. And that brings us to our next slide. We meet a dad in crisis. We're told right here in verse 46 that he came to Cana in Galilee, which is where he made the water and wine. And at Capernaum, which is 18 miles away, there is an official whose son was ill. Let's meet this official. It never says it exactly here, but that he is called an official. The Greek word is basilikos. That has the Greek word king in it. He's a servant of the king. King Herod Agrippa, son of Herod the Great, lived in Capernaum. And so we can put all that evidence together and pretty well 100% assume that this was a man who served in the court of Herod Agrippa, King Herod the Agrippa. Now, Agrippa was not a king in the way that we would associate it being with a king. The emperor, the Caesar of Rome, would install little provincial governors. 
and bestow upon them the title king. And that's what Caesar had done for Agrippa's father, Herod the Great. And as long as those people remained useful to Rome, Rome would bankroll and finance their affairs as long as they kept the locals happy and paying taxes to Rome. Agrippa was in the middle of a dispute with Rome. He wanted the whole slice of, he wanted the whole pie, and Rome only wanted him to have a slice. So he's at war with his brothers. But either way, he's still useful at this point to Rome. And in fact, Herod Agrippa was a builder. He loved to build buildings and monuments, especially in his own name. He was a bit of a party animal. He loved having drunken orgies. And it was one of these that would cost John the Baptist his head. And this official worked in Agrippa's court. We don't know anything about him other than that. He was employed on the payroll of Agrippa. He's obviously a man of some significance. He has some servants who are going to meet him later in the story. And he's a man who is likely well-known, given the fact that this story is still being told many years hence. Jesus performed many other dramatic miracles available to the public eye, and this one, in comparison, is a relatively private miracle. Yet it's likely because of the stature of this official, the reputation of this miracle lasted. This man has a son who is sick. We're told later that the culprit of his sickness is a fever. Now, parents, we know when our kids are really sick. They didn't have uh, thermometers to tell you if it was 103 or 104, but the child becomes lethargic, doesn't want to eat, doesn't want to move. And now the child is laying in bed, and he hasn't eaten for days, clammy and sweating all the time, coughing coming in and out of consciousness. Perhaps your kids, when they are feverish, they have nightmares. And they sleep talk. And it's clear that they're sort of acting out of their mind. And the mother and the father know this is a dire circumstance. They've seen cases like this before, perhaps, and they know this child isn't going to make it. He's hot to the touch, and he probably only has a little time left. Without modern medicine, a virus, a fever of this sort would take a child in a matter of hours. And this father has heard that a miracle worker is 18 miles away. And so what does this man do? He does what any of you dads would do. He decides to get his child the best care possible. And he gathers supplies. Now, uh, for those of you who who may know this, I have run a couple of marathons. And marathon is 26.2 miles. You train by progressively getting your mileage a little bit longer. And I tried to 
I try to think, so in my training and in the races, how many times I've run 18 miles? And I think, I think it's seven. I think seven times I've run 18 miles or more. And let me tell you something. You don't go 18 miles without some serious preparation. You have to have your clothes in order, your shoes in order. You have to know where your water stops are going to be. You have to know about your food preparation. And so this man embarks on a long journey that no doubt required some means and preparation. It no doubt required some, some thought, but he takes it immediately and he goes. There's no time to spare. And we learn that he meets Jesus about one o'clock in the afternoon. It's likely that he got up at the crack of dawn that morning and headed out from where he was. It gets a little worse. From where he was to where Jesus is, it's about an 800-foot elevation change up. So he has to go from down below to up high over 18 miles, and he's going to go find Jesus. He doesn't even know exactly where Jesus is. A man can change his location pretty drastically over six or eight hours. So he's just headed out in that direction, hopeful to find Jesus until he does. He finds him. He finds him. And when this man meets Jesus, there is a desperation that comes through the text. In fact, I think the ESV comes across way too light. Look at verse 47. Look at verse 47 of chapter 4. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him, it says, and asked him. Go back to verse 40 of this same chapter. Just look up the page. It says, the Samaritans came to him. They asked him to stay with him. It's the same word. And it's much more intense than just a request. It's not, sir, would you please come down with me? There's an energy, there's an intensity, there's a begging. Please come down. He realizes that he's asking Jesus a big favor. Go six, eight hours out of your way. Walk 18 miles with me. Come with me because my child is in dire need. He's going to die. This scene has pathos running through it. And what Jesus says next is actually quite surprising. Well, I'm actually, let me finish this. This dad, this dad has drawn two conclusions about Jesus. Having only heard about what Jesus has done, he knows two things. He knows, number one, that Jesus can heal his boy. And he knows, number two, that Jesus cares. And so, this man has a plan. I need to get this guy to my son. Because I know he can do it, and I know he cares. If I can marry those two things together, along with my sick boy, then I know, I know my boy will be safe. And he's so passionate. He's pleading with the Savior. There remains a question, though. And... This, in fact, might be why two times he says, please come down, please come down. And it also explains why Jesus asks what he asks. The man is pleading. The man has some faith. He got himself to Jesus, but 
there's clearly still something in him that is wondering if this man is trustworthy. Is Jesus trustworthy? Can I trust him? And so Jesus then questions this man, and that brings us to our next slide. Jesus reveals a prayer of faith, and a prayer of faith in crisis. Listen to the response that Jesus gives in verse 48. Is this the response that you would expect Jesus to have? Jesus sees this man coming and falling before him, begging him, please come down, please take this 18-mile journey with him. There's no time to lose. My child will die. My son. And Jesus says, unless you see signs, unless you people see signs, you will not believe. This is going to be a problem with the Jewish people moving forward. They're always saying, if, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ, do some sign. He was just in Jerusalem. Do some sign. Jesus says, no, no. I will give you the sign of Jonah. Three days I'll be in this grave and then I'll rise up. Later in the book of Luke, not here of John, in Luke, Herod, the man that this official works for, is giddy like a school child because he gets to see Jesus and he'd been wanting to see Jesus do some sign. The Jews and the leaders were looking at Jesus as some sort of uh, magician. He can perform things and do good for us, but they don't entrust themselves to him. These aren't people who want to worship Jesus. They're people who want to use Jesus. And there's a world of difference. And so Jesus highlights this right here. You're not going to believe unless you see a sign first. There's almost a rebuke in that. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, you're not one of those folks, are you? Now, Jesus knows what's in his heart. Jesus knows what's there. What Jesus is trying to do is show that to everybody else and to us for their benefit and ours. And I want you to notice what this guy does. It's so amazing. He just pushes past it. Yes, sir. You can almost see the man's shoulders sink. I can't speak for these other people. I don't, I don't know what your purposes are. All I know is that if you don't come, my son is going to die. And I want you to come with me. Sir, will you please come down now so that my son doesn't die? And Jesus responds to that sort of faith. The nobleman is desperate. And I want us to read how Jesus responds to him. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Now I'm going to translate this literally for you. And I recommend that you put it into your Bible literally as well. We have here in our translation, go, your son will live. But the command, go, is a present tense command, and I guess it could be translated, be going. 
be off, be going. And he doesn't say your son will live. He says your son lives. Present tense. Please go now. Your son lives. 18 miles away, not seeing him, not knowing him, not laying eyes on his condition, not putting his hands on him. He doesn't close his eyes and beam thoughts across the chasm to touch that boy and make him better. Jesus wills it. He lives. And reality bends to the words of Jesus. Reality conforms to what Jesus not says, but what he wants. And the boy lives. It's remarkable. Go. Go. Your son lives. And if that's not amazing enough, the father did it. I mean, I put myself in his shoes. How many of you dads that would have been good enough for? <laughs> I, I, I think, I, I mean, I know me, right? And I think I would have been like, Jesus, I believe you, but why don't you let me hit you over the head and knock you out so I can carry you to my boy? <laughs> so you're not coming. Jesus, I know you said it, but I sure would feel a lot better if you came with me. No, he says, your son, go, go home, go. Your son lives. And this man believes. And he shows his belief with his obedience. John doesn't leave us guessing. He says right here, the man believed the word. Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, it's even stronger in Greek because we have this funny thing in our language where go is present tense and went is past tense, and you hear how they're different words. Imagine if I said it this way. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word Jesus spoke and goed on his way. He went on his way. He past tense, same word, and in Greek it's the same root. John is laying this out specifically because he wants us to notice that when this, when this man believed, he obeyed Jesus to the letter. He heard, your son lives, and so he went. He left. There was nothing to do anymore but obey what Jesus had just said. So the next day, the John is going to continue telling the story. The next day, the official for whatever reason, waits until the following morning to begin his return trip. Commentators have read into that. I don't know why the man waited till the next day. He was told about one o'clock that his son would live, and he could have probably made it home before sundown had he gone, but he had already walked 18 miles, and that's a long way. Perhaps he needed to Refresh, one commentator suggested that he had some business to perform in town, and he was so certain of his faith that he delayed and took care of his business before he went. That's all speculation. Regardless, the very next morning, the man got up early again and took off back home, this time to go the 18 miles mostly downhill. 
But something the day before had happened. The boy's healing was sudden and dramatic. Now, again, how many of you parents have had children who are feverish and feeling ill and so forth, and perhaps the, they've got an infection and the doctor gives them some antibiotics and the, the infection breaks or whatever, the fever goes away, and within an hour, what is your child doing? Literally climbing the walls of your house, <laughs> running around, making up for lost time. And you look at your wife and you say, well, I guess so-and-so is feeling better. <laughs> Here, this child was sick and dying in the bed, and we're left to assume that the healing was dramatic and obvious and clear. It's not like the child kind of limped his way back to health. He perked up and suddenly became a boy like every other boy instantly. And this is so remarkable. This is so remarkable that the servants have a conversation among themselves and they decide, let's not let our master go on a moment longer. He's probably still out there trying to find healing for the boy, but the boy's fine. Let's retrace our master's steps and go find him and let him know that the boy is healed. Little did they know the master was on their way to back home and there's one road and what you know they pass each other on the road the servants see the man the official and they say great news your son is fine he's better he's running around doing whatever he likes to do terrorizing us servants so we came to find you instead and the official already knows what happened. But he asks in the sort of confirming way that we'll ask the same question. We'll say, is that why you did such and such? We already know the answer. But it's one last final confirmation of what we know to be true. And this man, already believing Jesus, already believing the words, already making his way back home, runs into the servants and says, tell me, fully expecting confirmation. What time did the boy start to get better? They have no idea what interaction took place with Jesus. And they thought back and went, oh, you know, it's a little bit after lunch. Yesterday, about 1 o'clock, the seventh hour, 1 o'clock, seven hours after sunrise. And the man knew that that's the exact moment Jesus said, your son lives. And it says he believed, meaning he believed all the more. He wasn't doubting before. He was obeying. But now the depth of what Jesus had done had started to settle in on his soul. And we find out here that this official goes home and he starts to tell his family about his interactions with Jesus. He doesn't play it off. You can imagine 
when he got home, his wife would say something like, it's a miracle. He suddenly got better. It it was the strangest thing I ever saw. And this man could have gone, yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. But he says, no, honey, I've got a message for you. (laughs) Let me tell you why that happened. Let me tell you what happened. He gathers his entire household, and it says they believe, and it's noteworthy. By the way, this this is a miracle that's unique to John's gospel. And here we are, 50, 60 years after the event. The nobleman is likely long since dead, unless he had an unusually long life. And this story in this region is still being told about how Jesus healed over that distance. It's amazing. All right, I have four points of conclusion. Four points of praying in crisis. When crisis strikes, no matter the crisis, four points. Number one, God's goodness. In crisis, God's goodness must be enough. I want you to notice the official's prayer was notable for, wasn't, for what wasn't there. He doesn't say, you know, Jesus, I, I would really like you to come heal my boy. I've, I've, I've been a pretty good guy. Jesus, I'd, I'd like you to come heal my boy. My boy is a good kid, and he's got a bright future. He's really intelligent, and he could do a lot for you. He comes to Jesus with no no thought of self-righteousness. No thought of desert. My boy is sick. I'm in crisis. You can help. You're good. You care. Will you do it because of that? And that's enough. When in crisis, we can appeal to God's goodness alone. And really, that's the only thing we can do. Number two, when we pray in crisis, we must allow God to remain God. Now, God will always be God. We can't do anything about that. But sometimes we act as though we're God. And Jesus wanted the official to experience something different and far more spectacular than this guy had envisioned. Now, let's think about that for just a second. The the official wasn't asking for something small. Come 18 miles with me right now and perform a miracle. He's already asking for something big, but he wants Jesus to do it directly, to lay his hands on him, to to touch his boy in some physical way. And this, and Jesus has a different idea altogether. Not because he doesn't want to heal the boy. In fact, he's already healed the boy. He wants the man to experience something even greater. He wants this man to think about how Jesus speaks a word and reality changes. He wants this man to see how utterly 
omniscient and omnipotent and sovereign Jesus is. He wants Jesus, he, Jesus wants this man to see something even greater. And that might be the case for you. Number three, the God who answers prayers gives commands. The God who answers prayers gives commands. Sometimes a crisis comes and we ask God to help us. And then we turn around and flaunt the word of that God who we're asking to intervene. And we reveal that we're a whole lot like those Jewish people who demanded a sign. We're not earning God's intervention with our good behavior in retrospect. But there are times when in a crisis, God will use that as a goad to remind us that something in our lives is out of joint. And it behooves us at that moment to obey the king whose grace we're entreating. And in the end, that crisis will do an even greater work for it can rid us of things that get between us and our king. And then last, answered prayer has its fullest work when it results in praise. Answered prayer has its fullest work when it results in praise. one of the prayers that you might want to consider praying in crisis. Crisis strikes you, you reach out to the Lord, and you say, Lord, when this crisis subsides and all is done and all is good, remind me. Don't let me take credit. Put it on my heart to praise you. Put it on my heart to tell others and lift you up. Not unto me, Lord, but unto you. Lord, put, put that into my mind. Drive it home so that you're the one who is held up as praiseworthy and trustworthy and kind and gracious and good and sovereign. I want you to do that for me. And that's a prayer that I think God will gladly answer. Well, if you're in a crisis, or if you're just between crises, <laughs> may John 4 be help for you as you pray during those times. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story of the nobleman's son. Thank you for the mercy and grace that you showered onto this man. And thank you for the justification that you worked in his heart as he believed. Lord, we praise you for the crises that you bring into our lives, for the fruit that it produces, and for the way in which it shows you to be a good and sovereign Lord 
Father, some of us in here are having a tough time with a life matter right now. They have found themselves in crisis. And I pray that you would put into their hearts the faith that this nobleman had, who laid his need before you with no self-righteousness and persisted in it and trusted and obeyed you when the king spoke. May our own folks do the same for your glory and your praise. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.